I want to thank you for joining us for Resurrection Sunday. We're so happy that you've decided to spend time with us, um, even if it's through video. You could be spending your time with any church around the world, but you've picked Abundant Life Christian Fellowship this morning, and I can't tell you how happy it makes my heart when I see in the comments, hey, so-and-so family is, is joining, we're online with you. So thank you for being with us. Um, today is a tremendous Sunday because of what we are celebrating. Um, and we're going to talk about that this morning. For those of you who have been with us, uh, you know that we have been going through a sermon series that we have titled, This is Our King. And what we're doing is we're looking at what sort of king was Jesus? And is he a king worth following? My hope has been that for those of you who have committed your life to Christ, that as we consider who Jesus is, that you're reminded of why you made the decision to follow him, that he truly is a king worth following. And if you haven't committed your life to Christ, um, but you're thinking it through, or you're kind of on the verge of making that commitment, I am hoping and praying that this series is helping you grasp better, uh, of grasp Jesus better, who he is as a king, and that you are closer than ever to committing your life to him because he truly is a king worth following. In the first week of the series, we considered that he is a servant king. The second week, we considered that he is a humble king. Last Sunday, we considered that Jesus is a suffering king. And today, we get to talk about the most important aspect of Jesus's kingship. He's not just the servant king, he's not just a humble king, nor is he just a suffering king. He is also a risen king. And this changes everything. This, the importance of this can't be overstated, overemphasized. Christ's resurrection is so extremely critical. And uh, it's my, my privilege and pleasure to be able to talk about that this morning with all of you. So to focus on Christ's resurrection, here are the three questions that I am hoping to provide you with some answers uh, for. So the first question is, without the resurrection, why does Christianity unravel? So we're gonna consider that question first and then we'll go to, is there any evidence that the resurrection is true? And then if the resurrection is true, what does that mean for us today? We are going to be rooted in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 28. Um, the scripture is going to be on the screen for you, but if you want to follow along in your own Bible, now's the time to, to grab that and turn to that passage. Let's pray, and then I'll read that passage to you, and we'll consider those three questions. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you that we can connect in this way. Thank you for your word that is such a lamp unto our feet and a light to our path. Thank you for preserving it for us so that we can learn about you. We can learn about the sort of king you are and how much you love us. Lord, I pray that as we consider the fact that you are a risen king, that your Holy Spirit would open our minds and hearts to 
uh, appreciate the evidence and that that would lead to us appreciating you more fully and worshiping you more fully. Again, we thank you for this time. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so let me read to you 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 28. This is the Apostle Paul writing this. He, he writes, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he, has, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that he was seen by over five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. Now, if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God, that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. But now Christ is risen from the dead, and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order. Christ the first fruits, afterward those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet, but when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. All right, so let's, let's consider the, the three questions that I threw out to you. The first being, without the resurrection, why does Christianity unravel? Um, Paul, he makes no bones about it that if you take the resurrection away from the Christian faith, 
you don't have a faith. It is completely empty. Um, the Greek word that's translated empty in 1 Corinthians 15, 14 means that it's void. Another way to, to translate that Greek word is, is to say that it's void of all truth. And so what Paul is saying, if Christ has not risen, if he hasn't risen from the dead, then then the Christian faith is void of any truth. And Paul's preaching and what he's doing is really meaningless. And if you think about it, uh, what Paul is saying is, look, if Christ is still dead, if his body's still in a tomb somewhere over in Israel, then who cares if he was a servant king or a humble person or that he even suffered. He's dead. It, it really doesn't mean anything. Um, and I think Paul's, Paul's logic is good logic. I, I would have to agree with him. I, I was thinking about, all right, well, if Jesus, if, if there was no resurrection, can we still learn from Jesus? Can we still at least think that that Jesus was a good moral teacher that we can glean from? And the answer is no. Uh, C.S. Lewis, he made a particular argument uh, famous, and it basically talks about how there's only really, if, if Christ is still in the tomb, there's really only two views you can have of Christ. One of those views is you can view Christ as a liar, right? Um, he made all these claims about himself, right? That he would rise from the dead, right? He made claims that he existed forever and that he was the son of God and that he would judge the world. Well, he must have like, so one option is he knew all of that was not true, but he still decided to tell people that. He decided to deceive other people and now millions of people right over the centuries have bought the lie and so uh, Jesus is a liar and if, if that's the case then how can you say he's a good moral <laughs> good moral teacher how can you say he's a servant when he has chosen to deceive many right so that's one option if Jesus's body is still in the tomb another option is that uh, Jesus was a lunatic that he said all these things he made all these claims about himself and he he sincerely believed them but he was just so delusional so mentally ill that he was sincerely mistaken and so he was this crazy lunatic madman right well those are really the two options you have if Christ's body is still in the tomb uh, he was either a liar or a lunatic. And if he was either one of those, why would you listen to anything he had to say? Why would you trust anything at all he had to say? How would you even know if any of it's true? And so Paul's saying like, look, if he's still in the tomb, like just the best thing you can do is totally reject the Christian worldview um, and just throw it out the window. It's good for nothing, right? Um, the, the problem with viewing Jesus as either a liar or a lunatic is that Jesus doesn't match that profile. I mean, even if you just looked at ancient non-Christian sources and what they tell us about Jesus, you would know that Jesus was 
And again, these are non-Christian ancient sources. You would know that Jesus is a historical person, that he was virtuous, that he was a wise man who worked wonders, who accurately predicted the future, taught his disciples. His teaching drew a large following of both Jews and Gentiles. He was identified as the Christ, which is, uh, it's not Jesus's last name. It means anointed king. He was believed to be the Messiah, which is, you know, God's chosen special deliverer. And he was widely known as the wise king of the Jews. So even if you just look at ancient non-Christian sources, you would be able to discern that. And that doesn't match the profile of a liar or a lunatic. And then if you add in the Christian ancient sources, what we have in the Gospels, what you see when you look at Jesus, you see this brilliant figure. You see this, this man who's so full of compassion. You see this man that has extreme emotional intelligence and knows how to relate to people and connect with people. You see this, this teacher who astounded people with his teaching. It was revolutionary teaching, stuff like love your enemies. That was like not even considered a, 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 even a thought by the ancient people living in the first century. And so <laughs> you don't have Jesus's profile doesn't match a lunar or a lunar, a lunatic or a liar. It just doesn't match up with those. Um, Christian philosopher Peter Kreeft, he says this, Jesus has in abundance precisely those three qualities which liars and lunatics most conspicuously lack. His practical wisdom, his ability to read human hearts, his deep and winning love, his passionate compassion, his ability to attract people and make them feel at home and forgiven, his authority, and above all, his ability to astonish, his unpredictability, his creativity. Liars and lunatics are also dull and predictable. No one knows who the Gospels and human beings can seriously entertain the possibility that Jesus was a liar or a lunatic or a bad man, a philosopher and an antagonist of Christianity, John Stuart Small. He, he admits that Jesus was a first-rate ethicist and that he was supremely worthy of the attention that he got and the emulation that he received of, of people trying to emulate, emulate his life. He writes this, but about the life and sayings of Jesus, there is a stamp of personal originality combined with profundity of insight. In the very first rank of men of sublime genius of whom our species can boast. When this preeminent genius of whom our species are, when this preeminent genius is combined with the qualities of probably the greatest moral reformer and martyr to that mission who ever existed upon earth, religion cannot be said to have made a bad choice in pitching on this man as the ideal representative and guide of humanity. Nor, even now, would it be easy, even for an unbeliever, to find a better translation of the rule of virtue from the abstract into the concrete than to endeavor so to live that Christ would approve of our life. Here, this is somebody who is antagonistic about the Christian worldview saying this about Jesus. So if he's not 
a liar and he's not a lunatic, if what we see of Jesus doesn't match up with that, um, what is he? Um, and is there any evidence for his resurrection? Um, because if Jesus is alive, then the option that we had before us is he must be Lord, right? And that's C.S. Lewis's argument. Either Jesus was a liar, he was a lunatic, or he actually was who he claimed to be, the king of the universe, the Lord. Um, and if he is the Lord, and if he rose from the dead, shouldn't we want to believe and trust everything that he had to say? I mean, if he hasn't, why believe anything he's had to say? But if he has, why would we not want to know everything he has to say? And so, is there any, is there any evidence for the resurrection that it's true? So, the reality is there's lots of evidence. Um, and it would take hours to go through the evidence that exists that the resurrection is true. Um, and what I'm going to do is I'm simply going to point out some of the evidence that we have in the passage that I read to you earlier. But if you want to take a deeper dive into the evidence, I recently read a book, most of the book, uh, by J. Warner Wallace. It's called Cold Case Christianity. And I've read a number of books on the evidence for Jesus's resurrection over the years, but this one is fantastic. I, I just really appreciated it. It's really accessible and easy to read. J. Warner Wallace, he was an he described himself before he came to faith in Christ as an angry atheist who enjoyed picking apart Christians in arguments about uh, the Christian faith over argument over the Christian faith um, and it, he was also or it still is a cold case homicide detective and so what he did is he took his skills as an expert detective and applied those to the New Testament and it was through that process that he actually came to believe that there the evidence was overwhelming that Jesus was who he said he was. Um, more than any, any other cold case that he ever worked on, there was more evidence for the resurrection of Christ. And so he ended up coming to a place where he gave his life to Jesus. Highly recommend the book. And so here, what, what I want to do is just fo focus on some evidence from 1 Corinthians 15 for the resurrection. Um, if you were to really do a study of the evidence, you would find that uh, liberal scholars and conservative scholars, non-believers who are scholars, as well as believers who are scholars, they agree on 12 historical facts about Jesus. I'm just going to mention four of them to you because really it's these, at least these four facts that we have to provide an answer for. Again, most scholars believe on these four facts, non-believers and believers that are scholars. So here are the four facts. Jesus died on the cross. Jesus's tomb was empty and no one ever produced his body. Jesus's disciples believed that they saw Jesus resurrected from the dead. Jesus's disciples were transformed following their alleged resurrection observations. And so 
when you're making your mind up about Jesus, you have to give an explanation for these four historical facts. And so, um, everyone uh, has to come to a decision on these facts. And, and to not even look at them is in a way of just saying that they're not worth your attention, right? I guess it's a way of, uh, when you write them off, that's a decision in and of itself that, you, that you're making about these facts. Um, there have been many theories to try and explain these four facts apart from the resurrection. And I think they all have difficulties at different points because they inadequately, inadequately explain these four, four facts that need to be explained. So for example, uh, one theory uh, that people have argued in regard to, to these facts is that the disciples, uh, Jesus' disciples stole the body um, from the tomb and they made up the resurrection story. Um, now, if, if you take that approach and if you run with that theory, sure, that can explain, uh, obviously, that Jesus died on the cross. That can explain why the tomb was empty, right? It can explain that. But it can explain, I, at least I don't think so, and I think many people would say, it can explain why the disciples were so radically transformed, right? The, the fourth historical fact that, that I mentioned. Uh, for example, the Apostle Paul, who's writing 1 Corinthians 15. What do we know about Paul? Well, we know that Paul was extremely zealous about Judaism. I mean, that was his religion. Paul was Jewish. He was very zealous um, and very involved in that, that religion. So involved, in fact, that he originally... Had to have think, had to have thought that the resurrection was a hoax because uh, the, we learn about Paul as he's on the road to a city to persecute Christians, um, at, and he approves of their deaths. So you you have Paul who goes from that to he becomes the biggest ambassador of Christianity. Uh, the world has ever seen. He, he's responsible for writing most of the New Testament. Why the change? Well, 1 Corinthians 15, 9 through 11, it tells us that Paul, uh, but by the grace of God, well, let me start back in. I, for I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God, which was within me. And he also says in verse eight, verse eight that he was, that he saw the resurrected Jesus. And so what Paul is saying, the reason why his life was changed so radically was because he actually saw the risen Christ, experienced God's grace, God's grace touched him, and totally changed him it's so much that he was willing to give up um, his religion overnight that he had practiced for so many years. Um, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, he also mentions James in verse 7. James was the brother of Jesus. Guess what? James, during <laughs> Jesus's public ministry, did not believe that Jesus was who he said he was. 
Um, but then you, you read Acts and you find that James was one of the leaders of the, the main leader of the church in Jerusalem. So what happened to James? Well, Paul says in verse seven that James also saw the resurrected Christ. And just think of the rest of the disciples and the apostles, right? Before uh, Jesus's resurrection, you know, Jesus had been killed. You find the disciples disassociating themselves from Jesus. They are terrified that they're going to be killed because of the, just like Jesus was because of their association with Jesus. But then after, uh, you know, some time goes on and you see the disciples, the apostles, so courageously declaring that Jesus rose from the dead. Why? Well, because they had seen the resurrected Christ. That's why. How else can you explain the change in these disciples? And you may say, well, I, it must have been advantageous for these disciples to follow Jesus. There had to be some ulterior motive why they would leave their religion behind, adopt this brand new worldview basically overnight. There, there has to be some other reasons why they were following Jesus. Well, the historical evidence um, tells us that they didn't, there was really no advantages to them. In fact, I mean, Paul talks about, if you were, go, were to go further in 1 Corinthians 15, he talks about um, how daily he's like dying and how he's up against it daily. Um, if, let me, uh, he says, <laughs> Um, he says, I fought with beasts at Ephesus. <laughs> and he says, I am in jeopardy every hour. That's what Paul was saying, right? And so they, in, in the history will tell you, the ancient sources will tell you that all of the disciples end up being killed uh, because of their belief that Jesus rose from the dead. Um, you know, people will mistakenly believe for something that is a lie, but that they mistakenly believe to be true. But who do you know would actually die for something that they know for certain is a lie? We, people don't do that, right? And so the only way to really explain why there is such a tremendous change in the disciples is because they really did see the resurrected Jesus and they went to their deaths saying that they saw him. Um, so the disciples stole the body and made up the resurrection accounts. That doesn't hold water because it doesn't explain, you know, why the disciples were radically changed. What about, so another theory is that the disciples, that they hallucinated, right? And so they really didn't see Jesus. They just imagined that they, that they did. Well, um, you know, hallucinations are like dreams. Um, they're very individual, individually based. Like if, if I wake up from having a dream, I don't turn to my wife and say, boy, that was a great dream we had, right? Like you don't dream together. That's the same with hallucinations. They're very individually based. Large groups don't all, you know, uh, dream together. First uh, Corinthians 15, 16 says that Jesus appeared to 500 people at a time. Um, so there's no way that all of these people had the same hallucination. 
Um, the Gospels tell us that Jesus appeared on 12 separate occasions to different people and different settings over 40 days. So there's no way that these were all hallucinations, right? Um, and even if by some chance that could have happened, that they all hallucinated and saw Jesus and it was just a, you know, basically a, their imagination, um, it doesn't explain the empty tomb. It doesn't explain that there was nobody to be found, right? So it's inadequate at explaining those four historical truths. Um, we could go on with, with why these theories that keep Jesus dead just don't work. Um, some people, you know, you know, said, uh, have said, you know, in regards to the disciples making this story up too, that, um, you know, there's, there's too many problems with the resurrection accounts. They're too problematic to be fabricated stories. For another example is, guess who? All the gospels have the very first witnesses being women. Well, women in, first, in the first century, were their, their testimony wasn't even considered valid in, in court. And so if you were writing these accounts, you would never have women be the first people <laughs> to uh, learn of the resurrected Jesus. It, it would undermine what you were trying to establish. Another thing that's really important to take note of is N.T. Wright. He's um, a brilliant scholar, and he really studied the worldviews of first century uh, people and what he found is that none of them would have had imagined a resurrection that was not in their worldview. Um, uh, the Jews, they did believe, some of them believed in a general resurrection at the end of time when God would, would renew the world, but they never envisioned that a single person in the middle of history would be resurrected. And so for them to even have visions of, of or hallucinate about the resurrection, that wouldn't even be in their brain. Even the Gentile people of the first century world um, didn't believe in a bodily resurrection. The body was bad. They, you know, they viewed it as bad and they believed salvation was escaping the body, your soul escaping the body. So this, this is just something that the disciples would have not just made up, nor would anybody believe it if there wasn't these repeated reports that were coming from trustworthy sources that they had seen the risen Jesus. It would have never, ever gotten off the ground. Author Tim Keller, he writes in his book, The Reason for God, that nothing in history can be proven the way we can prove something in a laboratory. However, the resurrection of Jesus is a historical fact much more fully attested to than most other events of ancient history we take for granted. Every effort to account for the birth of the church apart from Jesus' resurrection flies in the face of what we know about first century history and culture. If you don't short-circuit the process with the philosophical bias against the possibility of miracle, the resurrection of Jesus has the most evidence for it. The resurrection is the best explanation for those four historical facts that I mentioned to you. And what Tim Keller is saying, what people do is they come 
with the, the, the presupposition that miracles can't happen. And so they're not even willing to look at the historical evidence and follow it where it leads. They just write off any, any chance of the supernatural or a miracle happening. And so they've made up their decision before they even look at the, the evidence. That's what he means by short-circuiting the evidence. So uh, without the resurrection, Christianity unravels. Is there good evidence that the resurrection is true? Absolutely. And we just touched on just a, bit, just a little bit of it. The third question that I want to speak to is, if the resurrection is true, what does that mean for us? It means everything. This, oh man, this, is, this means so much. One of the things that I want to say is that you know Paul says that if Christ has 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 not been raised from the dead then we are still in our sins right last sunday when we talked about Christ's suffering we talked about how evil every form of evil was thrown at Jesus on the cross and really what was happening is he was bearing the penalty that we deserved for our sin in our place. And he was being punished as we deserved. Um, and so what Paul is saying is, hey, look, if Jesus, if he's still dead in the tomb, then he wasn't the Messiah. He wasn't a substitute for our sins. But what Paul is saying is because he is alive, and God raised him from the dead, that is God's stamp of approval that Jesus truly was the once and for all payment for our sins so that we can be forgiven, so that we can be set free. If he is still in the tomb, then guess what? We are still guilty before God. We are still deserving of the punishment of our, that our sins deserve. God is a just God. He's not going to let the guilty go unpunished. And so, but thankfully he's alive. And so that is taken care of. Another thing that Paul says about Jesus and why the resurrection means so much to us and so much for us is Paul says that Jesus is the first fruits he is the first fruits of what is to come. And so what Paul is saying is that what happened to Jesus, what God did, what God the Father did for God the Son, God is planning to do for all of his people and for the world. This is the best news we can possibly hear. Um, the greater harvest that Jesus is the first fruits of that is to come. For God's people is that we are going to receive resurrected bodies that no longer get sick, that no longer are tired and, and grow weary and break down and decay and, and die. That, that's, that's to be done with. And what God did to Jesus's body and resurrecting it and making it new and whole, he's going to do to the entire created world. Um, starting at verse 20, Paul says, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. 
For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the first fruits, afterwards those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and authority and power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. The last enemy that's going to be destroyed is death. What Paul is saying here is that the kingdom of God is going to come in all its fullness and everything everywhere is going to be, um, it's going to be subject to God's rule. So what God wants done on earth is actually happening in evil and death will be quarantined forever, right? It'll be done with in this good God's good world. That is the future that we have to look forward to as God's people. Resurrected bodies with the resurrected Jesus and God's resurrected world. It's phenomenal. And we know that that's going to come because again, Jesus is the first fruits of that future world. That will come and death will ultimately die and be no more. We know that because Jesus, all of evil and death was thrown at Jesus and he took it all on himself and then he overcame it by rising from, from being, from being, yeah, he came alive. He rose from the dead. Um, and so I would throw out to you, uh, it, you, you have to look at the evidence. There's no other worldview promises as much as the Christian worldview does. And so I, I really want to challenge you, if you haven't looked at the evidence, to look at it. Make a decision here. There, there is too much at stake. Um, and I also tell you that you need to transfer your trust to Jesus. So it's one thing to believe that Jesus was the son of God. It's even one thing to believe that he did, he was raised to life. You can believe all that, but until you transfer your trust to him, um, until you put your faith in him, the, the promises of this new world are not for you. Um, he's, God's going to come back and he is going to judge every person. And unless we, our trust is in Jesus, we're, we are not going to pass that judgment. We are going to be quarantined with the rest of the evil in a place that the Bible calls hell. And so you need to transfer your trust to Jesus. It's not enough just to believe that yeah, Jesus was the son of God and that he came back to life. You have to transfer your trust to him. That's what J. Warner Wallace did, right? I can look at a branch and believe that the branch is going to hold me, but until I actually step on that branch, I haven't trusted, I haven't transferred my trust to it. Transferring our trust to Jesus means he's our Lord, he's our boss, we're living for him, and we're going to allow him to dictate what we do in every facet of our life. There is no better decision you can make because Jesus is a servant king, he is a humble king, he is a suffering king, and best of all, he is a risen king. Is he your king?